Welcome to the Human Climate Podcast. Carol Smaldino is a practicing psychotherapist and author of The Human Climate, Facing the Divisions Inside Us and Between Us. Our tendency is to demonize or to worship blindly, to be arrogant and are covered by shame and doubt. Her restless spirit has provoked a quest for guests who might help her and us to question our assumptions. Carol invites you into the conversations where she herself has wound up taking her own dives into inconvenient territories. I hope you'll join me for a series of unexpected duets. Hello, and welcome to The Human Climate. I'm Carol Smaldino. My guest today is Sue Erickson Bloland. So thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. So just to say that the, um, the Human Climate, the podcast, as well as my book of the same name, focus on the, um, the role of emotions, basically, in driving us and keeping us from consensus. And um, I have focused somewhat on the shadow of Jung, you know, Carl Jung, the shadow, yes. Um, and I focus somewhat on, in my writing, on our tendency when we can't integrate the full plethora, let's say, the plethora of our own emotions, we tend to demonize, we tend to project them onto other people and then we demonize them. Increasingly, actually during the podcast in particular, I've been focusing on our tendency to put people on pedestals. And Mm -hmm. so our tendency to kind of stop living our own lives and live through other people and worship them. So your book, which I read twice, I mean, I read it a few years ago and then for this, I reread it, certainly focuses on the latter. And so it's been very helpful. It's, it's been very helpful to me as in my own journey in my less than world famous family, but to me, famous brothers in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to you. When I was um, early in the field, I did kind of worship your father. So it's Eric Erickson, it's your father. And the title of your book is In the Shadow of Fame, a memoir by the daughter of Eric Erickson. And clearly, as you say in your book and elsewhere, your mother, Joan, was quite famous in her own right. Mm-hmm. And certainly as a devotee um, of your dad, but you know, quite uh, talented. Um, I, I put your dad on a pedestal. I mean, I, I, I remember being at a, uh, a talk, I guess, where he was a guest. And when he walked down the aisle with that shock of white hair, it was like, oh my God, he was so gorgeous. Um, so what you do in your book is you do this amazing to me, and I don't mean to put you on a pedestal. So let's just... (laughs) Um, but you do a good job uh, for me of uh, kind of explaining your own journey as as the daughter, as the person who became much more of a person. And you talk a lot about fame. 
-hmm. And uh, I did read your article in The Atlantic um, where you talk about fame. And so I think I'm ready to talk to you and to listen to you. And so I have some questions, but I want to say to you, please interrupt me, add anything. If I'm making a mistake, correct me. Okay. Okay. I'll, I will do that. If you could tell me from your perspective, something about your dad's charisma and how that affected you. Mm hmm. Interesting that uh, he certainly uh, did have charisma that that preceded his fame. Mm -hmm. That is, he um, my, my first memories of his charisma have to do with um, growing up in California. And this was before his book, uh, Childhood and Society, was published. And that was the book that brought him into public view. Um, but while he was working on it, which was, of course, many years, well, probably six or eight years in the making, because it was such a comprehensive book, um, he was known in our family circle as the great scholar. People somehow already felt that he was going to be recognized. And I, and they were a little nervous around him, you know, already putting him on a pedestal. Now, my mother helped in that very much because it was um, very much in fulfillment of her needs that my father focused everything on becoming famous, on becoming well-known, on being a major figure in the field of psychoanalysis. So she was talking him up in those days and telling people, no, we can't come to your party because Eric is working or Eric is you know, in his study um, and he can't come up and be part of our gathering here by the pool. So he was, um, it was acknowledged with in this group of family friends who frequently came to our house where we had a pool um, and they would gather in the summer and swim. Whereas Eric, well, everybody knew where Eric was. He was working in his study, which was down the hill. Um, and when he appeared, it would be with that. It wasn't already the shock of gray hair. It wasn't quite that gray at the time. But he was still impressive looking and he and I think um, some of what what appeared as charisma was actually a great shyness. He wasn't at all comfortable just chatting with people, never was, unless it was about his work, unless it was about his ideas. Or it might be someone else's ideas, but they would be in, in his field. So he looked impressive, but he was not that easy in social interactions with people. And so uh, his shyness might come across as being very um, engaged in higher thought. Uh, he's, he's really, uh, you know, on his level. <laughs> You know, I just, I, I want to interrupt you for a second. 
for one, for those who don't know the name Eric Erickson, everyone who's taken a psychology class, I have found, or the people I know who have taken a psychology class, know the name Eric Erickson. For mm -hmm. people who haven't, if you just say trust versus mistrust, autonomy versus shame and doubt, they go, oh yeah. So I just want to say that he's that guy. And then mm -hmm. I, when you were talking about it, people assuming that he's engaged in higher thought, I was thinking of the movie, uh, the movie Being There with Peter Sellers. Do you remember? Yeah. You know, he would say, when they said, uh, someone mm -hmm. said, what do you read? And he said, I don't read. And they go, oh, sure, you don't read. You're above it. So uh -huh. I get what you're saying that people assume. I guess what you're implying too in, in terms of fame or the unsaid implication is when people put someone on a pedestal, they keep them on the pedestal, even if there's evidence to the contrary, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, because we have an investment in having people on a pedestal. It, uh, it in some way uh, makes us feel better about ourselves. Right. And, and I mean, it works both ways, of course. If pe some people are famous and you're not, then you are in a different category. You're not as worthy and as important. You're not as important as that person. But by joining in their importance, and uh, revering it and um, I guess you could say owning it for yourself, you, you are enhanced. You're enhanced yeah. by it. Well, we see that politically in an yeah. age where you know, the age of Trump and the age of Putin. Mm -hmm. So- um, Absolutely, would you, yeah. Would you be comfortable talking about your father's um, birth story? Sure. Yeah, I I think that, um, and and one of my points in my book about fame is that I see uh, fame as being something that is not just delivered upon people because they are so extraordinary. Um, that happens. Uh, we we know it has happened even to children. Um, and then the question is, do they retain it? Or as they grow up, do they move away from manifesting whatever gifts there were that, that made them well-known for a, a moment, right? But if you are somebody who becomes famous and stays famous, it is because you needed it desperately. It was the way in which you saved your own life at a very early point. Um, and even people who uh, mostly haven't become famous until they're at least in their 20s or the late teens at the earliest will say, oh, I knew when I was seven. You know, I, I've, I've heard so many actors, actresses, uh, people in all walks of life who have said, oh, yes, I knew early on that this is how I was going to survive. I was going to become famous. Um, and basically what that means is how I was going to survive the feeling I had as a child that I was totally unimportant, that I was so unimportant that I could not really bear it. 
I couldn't bear to be so insignificant. And I was going to uh, prove to the world that I was somebody. And there, there are other pieces that go into that picture that help someone to hold on to the fantasy, I'm going to become somebody. But um, very often the, the thing that has been so humiliating, dehumanizing, has made one feel so desperately unimportant is the loss of a parent, the disapproval of a parent, possibly the disapproval of both parents, anything in the way of an early childhood trauma that has been devastating to the child's self-esteem. And that devastation can, of course, and perhaps, no, always has the possibility of um, making the person uh, unstable, possibly potentially very um, emotionally disturbed, but under certain circumstances, we see that some people grab onto something in themselves and recognize it as a ticket to not just being relevant, but being super relevant. Often enough, a parent has said, has pointed out or made the child feel you have something very special about you. So in my father's case, um, he actually never knew who his father was. And that is very devastating to a child's self-esteem. I'm sure it helps if you have an adoptive father who uh, is very, very caring and appreciative of your gifts. But my father um, had no father figure for the first three years of his life. Um, uh, his mother, in fact, did not tell him then and never did tell him who his father really was. And we don't even know whether she knew who his father really was. She might not have been that sure. She promised her, um, your dad, she, when she was, when my father was three, his mother married the pediatrician who had taken care of him for those first three years. And the pediatrician proposed to her and she agreed to, and proposed on the grounds that Eric should never be told that the pediatrician was not his real father. So he, uh, in his early childhood, was of the belief that he, the pediatrician was his real father. Although we know now that children have better, have more wisdom than that. Um, he had not actually lived with this man or considered him a father for the first three years. And so at, at the, during those years, he was the pediatrician. He was not a father figure. Uh, so I don't believe a child at the age of three adopts a father and then believes henceforth that that really was his father. Um, but it was the first of many tales, uh, each of which was convoluted in its own way, because he was first told this, that this pediatrician was his father, then he was told 
No, that was not his real father, that his mother had been married and had conceived him and that his father had been left and um, abandoned the family. Uh, there were several stories, um, all of which denied the very great likelihood that she didn't know for sure. She had been married, but really just for 24 hours, after which, after one night with her new husband, uh, she refused to be with him and he left and went to Mexico. This was all in Denmark. So uh, all I'm, I'm just pointing out, it was a very convoluted story. He'd been given so many different explanations, none of which held any sort of real truth to them. And so he was very, um, preoccupied as a young man, as a child, as a young man with who his father might have been and, was, and felt rejected by his stepfather, which meant that the pursuit of the real father might be the pursuit of acceptance. You know, maybe his real father would accept him. At the same time, his mother, although she had to be somewhat hidden about it in her marriage now to the pediatrician, actually adored and worshiped him as her child. She felt him, she, he had been a companion to her until she married. She had introduced him in her own very intellectual life. She was a bohemian woman. Uh, and he became intellectually curious from an early age and his intellectual ability and, and curiosity appealed to her very much and she supported it and praised him highly for it. Um, unfortunately, his stepfather was not as appreciative and um, he was an Orthodox Jew who uh, resented the fact that my father did not eagerly embrace Judaism. So that's that put in a lot of uh, possibly extraneous pieces of information, but here's a man who was um, who had a deep sense of being rejected by one parent and then admired very much by the other parent. And that is a recipe that you will see very often in the lives of the, of the famous, that they will say that they, um, they were very isolated, very rejected. Sometimes it will be uh, some great writers have not even know who one of their parents was or have been sent away from India to go study in England because their parents thought it better for them to have a good education than to grow up with their parents. And that would be true of a number of very, very uh, wonderful British writers. Um, so that is my thought about what drives people to need extraordinary recognition, an extraordinary amount of recognition. They are trying to overcome a deep sense of inadequacy. So what happens to the daughter of the famous analyst? What happens to the daughter, you know? Uh -huh, mm -hmm. What happened to you? To, to the child, any, uh, and I, 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 yes, about the children of the famous for whom I will speak. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, that uh, what happens is that you have a world that greatly admires a parent 
for the image that that parent <clears throat> has created of him or herself. And it is a carefully crafted image. It is an image that reflects everything that the parent feels most inadequate about. So all the deepest feelings of inadequacy are transposed into a sense of, I can create an image of myself that shines in each of these areas so that no one will ever know how deep my sense of inadequacy is. Um, so my father, for example, uh, appeared profoundly self-assured. And people would say, do you know what I admire so much is your father has humility. You know, he clearly is so self-assured, but he has this humility when he's speaking about himself or his work. To which I would want to say, that wasn't humility. That was a deep shame that is still there. And is that you see, but you transport it in your mind, you translate it into humility. Because humility fits with feelings of being highly successful and highly competent, deserving the success. Did you, I mean, you didn't know that when you were small. No, what, but what I had when I was small was the father on the stage and the father giving the lecture or in the room filled with people who are all trying to get close to him so they can talk to him. And what I describe in my book is um, that he had that kind of charisma where people were actually um, nervous when they were around him. They became very nervous and ill at ease and they uh, stuttered a little bit and they were very self-deprecating as they spoke to him. Even people who in another conversation 10 minutes ago uh, had appeared perfectly adult to me and suddenly they became childlike in speaking to him. But at home, my father's insecurities were just right there. Uh, you know, they were him. They were the way I experienced him. So I had the father at home who, if you asked him, what do you think I should do, dad? He'd say, ask your mother. Um, or he would call to her, you know, in anxiety. Joan, what, what do you think Sue should do about that? Because he had so little confidence in his own judgment. Um, and then we would go to a party where he was being highly idealized again. And he was the, the person who was not being asked about his own life, his wife, his children, his, his personal life. He'd be asked about his ideas. And there his, his enormous, the other side of the coin, his enormous confidence in his ideas. But that feels, as you describe it, it feels deflating to you. Yes, because I inherited a lot of his insecurity. And uh, you could say, well, could I have adopted whatever it was that gave him the drive to be famous? Um, actually, I would say I, I don't think I needed to. I didn't need it as much as he needed it. I had much better parenting than he had gotten. And for that reason, I would say there was no way I was ever going to become famous because um, 
I just have never had that urge to focus in and stay focused. And this is the real me and the world's going to be introduced to the real me. You know, my work has never been the real me to me. But, but it feels like, I mean, from reading the book, it seems like, and then this is an odd thing to say perhaps, but you felt your own deflation. You felt it. You didn't hide it. And, right. you didn't, and you didn't hide it from your family. You know, you weren't the easiest person to be around because, I mean, according to you, you sometimes could be kind of sour and oh, yeah. they love that. And then you said you wanted to be a secretary. So, I mean, you know, yeah, it isn't that I uh, actually I was just pretty deeply insecure as a child. And right. I was unhappy and I cried a lot and I complained about things and uh, and it didn't look, they didn't like that as a way for me to be presenting the family to the world and they did their best to try to soothe me and get me to, you know, tone it down a little bit. But um, I, have, I have talked fairly recently with people who were there when I was growing up, when the family who knew us when we were the youngest. And they said, no, you were pretty miserable and you were pretty much a pain in the ass, you know? So I was not a confident child at all. What happened to me is eventually I got into therapy. Yeah. And then, yeah. then the parts of my father that I would not, you know, in me, <laughs> I had a chance to come out and be part of my more, my much fuller sense of myself, but I, I didn't know it was there. But I, you're talking about people who are famous tending to hide uh you know tending to carefully fully craft as you say mm -hmm. identity yeah. but you kind of stuck to your own identity even though it was a difficult one so you, in a sense you had more of a chance to get through to the other side because you and i mean in a way yeah stayed on it I knew I was unhappy. Yeah. And it, even though I procrastinated for years, I was afraid to go into therapy because of my father's image. Eventually I did. And it was just, you know, it was like the sun coming out in the morning. It was like, I can admit I'm unhappy and I can admit how unhappy I am. And that gives you the opportunity to own that part of yourself and to then begin to recognize your strengths. And to well, really own your strengths. Also, you were both lucky and ready to find a therapist who wasn't necessarily famous. Yeah. And a therapist who wasn't necessarily narcissistic. Right. Who would need you to be a certain way and repeat the past. That's more of what I did. So I'm, uh -huh. I'm familiar with that. And uh -huh. um, now... I think it's interesting then when people hear about your brother, Neil, uh -huh. they go, oh my God, no, that's not possible. Derek, yeah. Aaron. Yeah. can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, is, it is really kind of astounding because um, my, when I was five, uh, my mother had another baby, um, a boy child who had Down syndrome. 
My parents did not anticipate that at these. This was long ago before you were tested uh, and, and you knew before the child was born whether there was a likelihood of Down syndrome. So they had no idea. And uh, my mother, uh, they were, in other words, deeply shocked. Um, my mother in birth uh, had um, reactivated a problem that needed to be surgically um, taken care of before she would even see her baby. So she went from childbirth into surgery. Um, and my father was the one who learned that Neil uh, had Down syndrome. And he went to work talking with his intellectual colleagues, his, his professional colleagues, what should I do? And one of those people was Margaret Mead. Yeah. And Margaret Mead, was absolutely clear about it. You don't take a child like that home. That will not be good for the other children in the family. Nowadays, you would hear exactly the opposite, I believe, and certainly people act on exactly the opposite, but that's what Margaret Mead believed. I'll never know how many other people believed it at that time. And my father feeling that he was doing that for once he was the one who knew what to do and when to do it, had the child simply sent right away to a, a facility, to a, a home for babies with Down syndrome. And then the, the other part of that, now my mother of course could have called this child back instantly had she been so, so inclined, but she didn't. She did not call for Neil to be brought back. Um, she did, however, suffer enormous guilt. They both suffered enormous guilt for having done this. And I would guess also shame because obviously my father's image was as a child psychoanalyst and a, an analyst who wrote about childhood. So it was uh, it, it, really a betrayal of his image. It was very much in contradiction to his image as they knew it would be. And so they told no one. Hmm. That was a family secret. And I, there may have been a family friend. I believe there was a family friend who was a lawyer and whose help they sought and whose absolute guarantee of secrecy they sought. And he's the only one that they told that Neil even existed. But he would have set up whatever legal arrangements needed to be made for such a child that he should be taken care of, supported by my parents while uh, living in, in an institution. So the shock of it all to people later on is that um, a man named Larry Friedman then wrote a biography, a very extensive and an excellent biography of my father in which he revealed the birth of Neil. Oh, I see. He's the one who revealed it, which is what freed me a year later to publish my book about that included the story of Neil. But as you can imagine, I did not want particularly to be, I didn't want my book to be about, oh my gosh, we've just learned something about 
the Ericsons, I was very happy that that was already in the public domain and I could use it, but not be the one who, um, the uh, sort of daddy dearest, mommy dearest kind of exposure of my parents. I didn't want it to be like that at all. So that's the story of, of Neil and the, the revelation that Neil ever existed. You had a story that you talk about in the book, um, what happened to you. Right. I, um, I was told also that the baby had died and my brothers as well. Uh, and we all believed that for a period of time. Then my older brother was told when maybe two years later, my parents felt that one of us had to know the truth of the matter so that if they were if they died, that at least one of us would know that Neil existed and would see to his well-being. So they told my oldest brother, who found it very difficult to carry that secret because yeah. they did not tell us. They didn't tell me or my middle brother, Jan. So when, um, now this would be when I was 13, so we're talking seven, eight years later, my family moved from California where my father had been teaching at University of California. We moved to Stockbridge where he joined the, the staff of the Austin Riggs Center. And as we were driving east, my parents, my mother told me in the car when she and I were alone that I had a baby brother and that he was on the West Coast uh, in an institution. We were in Santa Fe. We were well on our way toward the East Coast. And that was my message that I was never meant to meet this younger brother. And if I had any inclination to go see him now that I knew, I was on my way to Stockbridge, Massachusetts at the age of 13. It was gonna be a while before I would be anywhere near that younger brother and could say, I want to meet him. So that, that's how I learned. And I had this in, of course, in the back of my awareness then for many years with a considerable feeling of guilt toward the, the brother that I never met, that I'd never gone to see, that I hadn't done any, anything to help. And something else as well, which is, um, if, if you recall my saying, I was the miserable kid in the family. I was the unhappy one. And, and, I was, and my parents acknowledged often enough in their ways of dealing with me that, you know, it really was not easy dealing with me. And of course, my thought would be, well, one child got sent away. How bad do you have to be to get sent away? So that was, a, and not only that, but within two years, I was sent away to Vermont, to, to, Vermont, to uh, boarding school. And when I arrived in boarding school, I, I had essentially, you wouldn't call it a nervous breakdown because I functioned perfectly well, but my self-esteem was in the toilet. I felt so abandoned. I felt so, they did send me away. It is true that I was, uh, that my unhappiness was too much for them and they just needed to 
remove me. So it was, um, again, uh, being, being so close to them in the ways in which they were most secretive and the ways in which they concealed their own feelings of inadequacy that I, I identified very much with the feelings of inadequacy, but the results of the fame did not nourish me. Right, and the thing about your being in Vermont, I mean, that was striking also when you say that you were in an orientation and they left. Yes, yeah, no, that was painful. Let's oh, really bring it up. <laughs> And I've talked about it often enough, so I'm surprised. Um, we arrived at um, in Vermont, and they were living then in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And they knew I didn't want to go to this school. They knew I didn't want this. So they dropped me off and, and we said uh, we would meet up after I went to an orientation. And after the orientation, I learned that they had left. They didn't want to say goodbye to me. And that was very painful. Uh, it was really a signal. You're on your own. You're going to have to make your own way. And, um, and we can't really say that we're there for you 100% because, because we can't tolerate the pain that you reveal. And that really was, uh, I guess that's the, a very good way of saying what they had felt of me as a child, that it was very hard for them to tolerate the pain that I exposed. Well, that you exposed and perhaps mirrored their own pain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely know they were during this period, of course, right after Neil was born, they were very unhappy. Imagine how unhappy they felt. Unhappy about what they'd done, unhappy about what it meant, you know, about what it meant to be, to have a secret child when you are becoming, you're on the road to becoming famous as a child analyst. Um, so, you know, it was just a very, very painful situation for them. And I was the one who revealed more. My siblings did not. My brothers were much more stoic. Um, and so, so when they left without saying goodbye to me, it was such a, it was so revealing of how painful it was for them to have me be in pain to not be able to comfort me because I was really uh, reflecting so much their own pain. And now they were going to make a life in Massachusetts in which this pain was left behind for them. 3000 miles away and never to be never talked of. We never talked about it ever. So that that's I, I think that those are the important <laughs> points of Neil and his significance that um, but, he, but you did talk about him when he died, right? You had to talk. No, 
No, my brother Jan and I were on the West Coast when Neil died. Okay. My parents were in Italy and my older brother Kai was on the East Coast. Jan and I were given the job of finding a burial place for him and having him uh, cremated and burying the ashes. And do you know, there's an irony in this that still, to Jan and I, is still extraordinary. We found a place that we thought was, was quite, quite nice. It was not close to where we lived. We were both in Berkeley. Um, but it was nice, and it was more in the countryside, which we thought would be nice for Neil. And we went, and we were there when the um, ashes were buried, and we each said something to Neil about how terrible we felt as siblings who had not been able to help him, who had never been able to know him. And we left. Neither one of us ever tried to go back within the next few years. And the cemetery was demolished and made into a highway. Oh. So it was as though Neil was again erased. It was the irony of it that he was erased. We, Jan and I still feel that we would certainly go back. We would have gone back years ago if we'd been able to go to it. And I don't know who was notified. I mean, everybody who had some sort of relative in the cemetery must have been notified, but Jan and I never knew. So, yeah, that's, that's yeah, tough. I um, I want to ask you about you and your relation to fame. You you know you obviously wrote the book, but you don't seem. I mean, it doesn't seem like you went into social work school, for instance, wanting to say, "Well, I'm the daughter of Eric Erickson." Not at all. Or no, no. I didn't uh, use the name at all. I didn't use the name Erickson. I used my married name, Bloland, um, and 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 still do. Although I use the Erickson now as well, but uh, in those days I didn't use Erickson at all. So it was that was my secret. Yeah. So you um, ha haven't wanted to be famous. Um, the only thing that I would say was wanting to be famous was a desire when my book was published for it to get more recognition than it did. It didn't didn't get a lot of recognition. And it felt um, the, the irony was that the publisher thought it would really just on the basis of my father's name, you know, yeah. that it that it almost inevitably would sell and then it didn't. Um, so to me, it was the irony that he was had all that fame when I was young and didn't couldn't use it. <laughs> and one time it could have really helped me. He was no longer as well known. He right. just wasn't as well known anymore. Um, but I would have liked a little more fame at that time. Yeah, but that that would have served me. It would have been very gratifying then. Um, but as time went by and it became not the foremost thing, you know, at the forefront of my mind, um, I had to realize that there's so much of me that is not prepared to support fame. I'm not prepared to work all day, every day, 
and have that be the driving force in my life. I'm really not. I think, I think the other thing, I mean, for me, is that <clears throat> I'm not prepared to be as criticized as you get when you're famous. Right. Oh, that's, see, you are extremely honest about these things that <laughs> I forgot to say that. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, what I've done in this podcast, actually, is go into my own depths with every person with whom I've had a conversation. So I, I, I was saying to Chris before, who's producing and editing, I was saying, I sometimes don't know where I am which is at points a good thing because I'm, I'm in Colorado now and uh, I'm not really a Coloradan, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. Uh -huh. We're going to Italy for five months. We have a house there. So I'm kind of very much an Italophile. But um, yeah, I've done, yeah, it, I'm gonna say it really helped me because even now talking to you, I realize that part of my issue with therapy is I looked for people who had charisma, which was a problem. It was a problem in, you know, how it worked out. Mm -hmm. So it taken me a really long time not to do that. And the other thing is, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I had these two very tall brothers who seemed very famous to me. One was, um, he dabbled in art and he was a radio announcer for WNYC, which is WQXR, you know, so he had a voice and he would say, hello, this is Ben Walensky of WNYC. And we're going to listen to a Chopin sonata and blah, 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 blah. And so he, he and he could mesmerize. He could it was charisma, yeah. Charisma. Carefully crafted, as you say. And my other brother was six foot two. Um, and he had two Fulbright scholarships in film and he made documentaries. And then he called Walter Cronkite Walt. And then he went to Mexico and he produced and directed Westerns in Spanish. So it was like, I'm Carol and I have these two brothers. Like I'm nothing and they are something. So um, yeah, that mm -hmm. was not good. So I, yeah. I think I've had to fight this. Um, well, I'm talking to Sue Bloland, Sue Erickson. You know, actually, I have to tell you the second time I read the book, you know, the first time it was like, oh great, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be speaking with Eric Erickson's daughter. The second time I read the book, I just felt, wow, you and I have a lot in common. Uh -huh. It, I was very much looking forward to talking to you as you, which is so, I did a little self-therapy in the, in the preparation. So <laughs> I don't really care. I mean, I do care because I, a lot of what your father wrote, there were certain seminal concepts like a little baby trust versus mistrust. The trust in one's own reliability is really important. I mean, so I use him and his work and he's part of my memory bank, but you have helped me get in touch with my own needs and how I've, oh, oh, I'm the daughter of, oh, I'm the sister of, 
you know, my brother calls Walter Cronkite, you know, and as you mm-hmm. say, it all fades anyway. But I, you know, my daughter was talented artistically. And I remember her as a, a little kid, um, all right, maybe middle school saying, I don't want to be an artist because I don't want to be critiqued. I'm doing uh-huh. it for me. I thought, wow, she's so healthy. Um, so I, so it's I profound. Think, yeah, it is profound. A therapist said to me as I was working on my book, um, and I was, you know, talking about my anxiety about the process, and he said, Well, yes, you know. Uh, you have to be prepared now to be roundly criticized and from many directions. The more the more admiration you get, the more you're going to get of the other side of that coin. Right, right. And um, yeah, so I, and you've said that some people have criticized you as mm. a disloyal, you know, as a disloyal daughter. Yeah, there's one thing that, that I, uh, an old friend of my parents, a very good friend of my parents, um, had writ- wrote to me and said, I'm sorry you felt you had to do that. Yeah. Like, there's the bad daughter, you know, you had to be the bad daughter because for whatever reason, yeah. Well, I'm really glad you had to do that. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, I wrote a book because I had to do it. I think I became a therapist because I had to do it. You know, what else was I going to do? I, I needed to save my parents and I needed to save the world and I needed to save me. And what other profession is there where you get to work on yourself constantly? I mean, so as Alice Miller, you, you know, you talk about Alice Miller in the Atlantic piece who, yeah. who wrote drama of the gifted child and I read it when it was still Prisoners of Childhood. Right. But, you know, she had this um, essay called Narcissism and the Personality of the Analyst in the book. Oh. Basically said, you know, she talked about being the child of narcissistic parents where you're gifted and you have to take care of them. And in some way, de- you know, you definitely felt that at certain points at least, you know, so you describe. And she said, you know, the danger, I mean, the good thing is that you can work this out as a therapist. The danger, and probably many, many therapists have this, is they then have the need for the patient client yeah. to take care of them. But when she was talking about having the history of taking care of parents, she said, who else would do this? I mean, who else would do this job? Who else would do this? Yeah, job? yeah. Wonderful, so, wonderful yeah. point. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm so glad that you did this, and uh, you definitely helped me about fame. And I think, I, I, I think, I think you're writing about fame. I hope you do more of it because I think. I hope to. Don't need it because it's when you put someone on a pedestal. I I had had another guest with with whom I discussed this, and I I told him that I envied him. You know, 
He's blind since he's 18. He's never been married, uh, but he has done many things. And we discussed the pedestal and what happens when you, when you give up on your own life. And so when you, and, and I, I think, well, I'm gonna be simplistic, but I, I think our problem as a culture, and it's what I write about, in the human climate is that we, you know, we don't get a chance to really integrate our emotions. And as such, uh, I, I am so I'm I, I am so happy that you invited me to do this because it caused me to read your book. And I love your book. I was just sort of, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to have this brought to my attention. Uh, and, and I was just going to make one thought in comparison of our themes that um, something very striking is you're bringing up the, the Jungian concept that, you know, if we don't, if we are not able to acknowledge the real evil of which we ourselves are capable, we are going to be projecting that onto others, whether it's other people or other groups or other countries, that's what we'll do with it. And, what an important idea that is when we look at the United States today and what's happening in the world. And I thought the thing, so you point very much to what happens when we don't recognize how terrible we can be, how evil, how cruel, how unkind. And my focus was more on same as an antidote to how inadequate we feel, how powerless we feel. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The two interesting um, dialectics. Is that what you call it? Yeah, dialectics. Well, if 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 I were to write it now, I, I would include more about fame because I what I've been aware of, you know, interviewing very, very interesting people is how how we tend to again put people on pedestals when we don't actualize our own lives and we don't claim whether it's deflation yeah. or sadness or wonderful things we um seek someone else to do it for us and that and then that per, you know we give that person permission to get away with murder a la putin a la trump to really get away with murder you know literally <laughs> with exactly. with um brutality on Paralleled, yeah. Right. So, yeah. I, you know, I I can see that, and then we expect a leader to do everything for us. You know, we don't mm -hmm. expect ourselves to have representatives who can be delegated certain tasks. We don't mm -hmm. really know that we can't do everything, and we need to collaborate in the best sense. Yeah. We, we need to cooperate. So. I am very glad we met. I am too. So um, I think we're good. You know? <laughs> I really hope for some future uh, conversations for, for carrying this on a bit. I, I want to thank you for being with me. You're very welcome. The Human Climate, Carol Smaldino. I thank Sue Erickson Bloland. I'm glad you're using Erickson because it's a claim of your identity. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's so much a part of you. Mm -hmm. And you'll be hearing from me. 
I would love to hear from you. It's been really a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.